Welcome to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ, located in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. I'm Pastor Mike Landsman, and these podcasts are taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. We pray that they will bless you, and we would love for you to come visit us and make our church home, hopefully, become your church home. Here's what we have for today. Glory to Jesus Christ. Perfect, perfect. So today is an incredibly important day in the church calendar, and Western churches, it kind of tends to be overlooked. I remember growing up, I never really remember hearing the story taught regularly, because generally speaking, a lot of the churches that I was part of didn't really follow the calendar of the church, except for, you know, the obvious days, like Easter and, uh, and, you know, and Christmas, right? Those were, and Holy Week, you know, those were the big, the big days. But other days on the church calendar kind of fell by the wayside, in, in my context, anyway, it may have been a little bit different for you. But I remember growing up, hearing the story of the transfiguration of Christ on the mountain wasn't really kind of made a big deal of. And it's fascinating that in the Western church, in some part of the Western church, it's still a very important day, but in a large part of the Western church, it's, it's kind of not. And when you contrast that with the Eastern church, today is an incredibly important uh, day for them. And it's important for both the Eastern and the Western churches because we get to see in our limited human fashion the revealing of Jesus as the God-man. We get a short glimpse, right, that Christmas hymn, and I said this during, during Christmas when we talked about the incarnation. You know, Charles Wesley, he wrote in that hymn, Hail, you know, um, Hail the Incarnate Deity, you know, veiled in flesh, right, the Godhead see, Hail the Incarnate Deity. And what we get in this story is we see that divinity shining out of Jesus a little bit. And in today's reading, we see parallels between Moses going up the mountain to receive a vision of God and Jesus bringing up his disciples so they could be given a vision of himself. So when we look at the Exodus text, the Lord said to Moses, he says, come to me in the mountain and wait there, and I'll give you the tablets of stone and the law and all that stuff. So Moses, this is Rose of Joshua, and he went up the mountain. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and they went up to a mountain by themselves. So we know the context, right, for this Exodus passage with Moses. God has delivered his people from Egypt with miraculous signs and wonders through his servant Moses, chosen to lead them to the promised land. But before they can go in the promised land, they stop at the holy mountain of God, where Moses first encountered God many years ago in the burning bush. And many of us, if we've been to Sunday school or saw the Prince of Egypt, if you didn't go to Sunday school, we know that story, right? The story of the burning bush. Moses, the language is really interesting at Exodus. It says, Moses, oh, I'm going to turn aside and look at this marvelous bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed by the fire. And then the bush talks to him. It says, take your shoes off. The same place. God tells him to bring the people back here to me. The same place where God spoke to him through the burning bush is the mountain where he brings the children of Israel after God delivers them from slavery to the Egyptians. And it's not natural fire in the burning bush. It does not consume the bush. Moses is called to ascend the mountain so he can be given the Torah, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the law given for their instruction. And he brings with him Joshua. 
And it's not clear from this passage if Joshua was there with him the whole time, but he brought him with. And in the reading from Matthew, Peter has just made his confession, right? In, in Matthew, we started here in Matthew 17, chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, who do you say I am? And the disciples say, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah the prophet. And Jesus says, he cuts to the chase and he says, who do you say that I am? And we know the story, right? Peter says, oh, I know, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, gold star, Peter. Because that's what he did. He had a flannel graph with all the disciples' name, and whenever they said something good, he put a gold star next to their name. And then Jesus then takes the opportunity to teach them about what's about to happen to him. He's going to go to Jerusalem and get betrayed. And Peter's like, no, you're not, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And then he turns to the flannel board, and he removes the gold star from next to Peter's name, and then puts a little black check mark for a, a demerit, right? That's how I picture it in my mind. So we've just had this confession and then Jesus teaches them he says if anyone would come after me you have to deny yourself take up your cross and you have to follow me so just as Jesus is preparing them for his own death he's preparing them as well for the pattern that they are to follow as well calling them to follow him in the same way and then after this happens it's six days after this happens Jesus takes the three disciples with him his inner circle Peter James and John and he brings them up to a high mountain so in the Exodus passage, Moses goes up the mountain and it says the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. This isn't in my notes, but this just jumped out to me right now. The pattern of creation. What does God do in Genesis for the six days, all six days? He's working, he's creating, he's active, he's doing things. And on the seventh day, what does he do? It says that he rests. Not because he's tired. He's like, wow, making snakes has really been tiresome for me. I got to kick up my feet and, and like relax. Or, you know, that, that, that Tyrannosaurus Rex was really, really tough. That's why I made his arms so small, because I just got tired. And that's why God has to rest, right? Now, God doesn't have to rest because he's tired. He's setting the pattern for us to follow, right? The seventh day, the sa the, which is the Sabbath day, which is the Lord's day. It is a holy day. He, on that day, he calls to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And Moses obeys the call of God, and he ascends the mountain, and it says the cloud covered it, right? And this cloud is the divine presence of God. And if you remember reading Exodus, when they travel through the wilderness at night, they have a giant pillar of fire leading them. And it gets cold in the wilderness, so they have heat, unlike I did last night at 4 a.m. They have heat in the nighttime and then in the daytime they are led by a pillar of cloud they have shade in the summertime or in the daytime right and that cloud descends upon the mountain of god some people will call this the glory cloud right the cloud of the glory of God's presence. I remember growing up, I would hear this often, the glory is here, the glory cloud is here. And I'm like, where? And I look around and I would actually never see it. And no one actually did see it. But when we read scripture, when the glory cloud shows up, it's visible. It has physical effects on the world, right? And when the glory of God shows up, everybody knows it. It's visible. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. 
Like, I've driven home, and you may have too. Actually, it happened this earlier this winter. I was driving home from somewhere, and I had gone to a movie with a friend, and the fog was so bad, and it was so dark, I could barely see anything. And at some points, I had to kind of pull my car over to the side and just sort of go really, really slow because I knew this is kind of dangerous <laughs> and I want to make it home, so I, put, I should probably be safe. Now, imagine that, right? Driving through fog so dark that you can't see anything. And then amp that up. And I'm reminded when I hear this, when I read this passage about the cloud covering the mountain, it made me think of the passage in Genesis. God is about to appear to Abraham, and God is going to make his covenant with him. And he causes Abraham to fall asleep. And then it says something really fascinating in the book of Genesis. I think it's chapter 21. It says, a great and terrible darkness fell upon him. A great and terrible darkness. And we're used to thinking terrible in the sense of something kind of bad, right? When you say, oh, that food was terrible, that means the food didn't taste good. Or that movie was terrible, it means that you hated the movie because it just maybe poorly added, bad effects, bad writing, cinematography wasn't so good. But terrible, in an older use of the word, doesn't mean necessarily bad, right? If something is terrible, you're confronted with something so awe-inspiring, you don't quite know how to respond to it. That's what terrible means. And this great and terrible darkness covers where Abraham is. And the glory cloud, when it comes down on the mountain, it's the exact same thing. This cloud, this fog of deep darkness. And God's glory sits on that mountain for six days before God speaks. And then God speaks to Moses out of the midst of of the cloud. And I think that's kind of for Moses' own safety, <laughs> right? Because scripture reminds us nobody can see God and live. And then continuing through the Exodus passage, it says, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people. And Moses enters the cloud and went up on the mountain for 40 days. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, right? Like I said with the kids, like when you take a flashlight and you kind of try to shine it through your hands. But <laughs> it's not an external light source. It's coming from within. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. So while Moses is enveloped in the midst of the cloud, the people of Israel are witnesses to the glory of God as well. They can see the presence of God in the cloud, but also in the form, it says, of a devouring fire on the top of a mountain. I, when I think of that, I can't help but to think of kind of like a volcano, but not quite, right? Because lava kind of spurts and comes out. Sometimes it shoots really high and far, or sometimes it just kind of bubbles down the side. And then when it gets far enough, it just kind of cools. And if it hits something, it's going to burn it away. But this, this fire, it says, is on the top of the mountain. And I like to picture that kind of like a crown, you know? 
maybe like a crown of fire covering the mountain. And notice it says a devouring fire. But the devouring fire of God does not consume the mountain, right? Just like the fire of God does not consume the burning bush, the fire does not consume the mountain. And when Christ is transfigured before their eyes, the fire of God emanating through him does not consume him. It does not consume him. His face shines like the sun. His clothes become white. The glory of the Lord only seen from far away by the people of Israel in cloud and fire that Moses walks right into radiates through the flesh of Jesus Christ. The glory of God that no one can see and live blazes through the face of Christ to his three disciples who are awestruck. And Moses and Elijah appear there. Moses is back on the mountain. The two most important figures in the Old Testament who represent the law and the prophets. And this, brothers and sisters, gives us the interpretive key for understanding the Old Testament, for understanding the scriptures. And Jesus demonstrates this on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. But on the mountain, we see this visibly demonstrated because Jesus is superior to the law and the prophets represented by Moses and Elijah. But he is also what the law and the prophets are pointing to. It's almost as if Moses is on one side, Jesus is on, or Elijah is on the other, and Jesus is in the middle, and they're both looking up at him because both witness to Christ. Both witness to Christ. Only through the revealing of Christ can we understand the scriptures. But why else would Peter, James, and John also witness Moses and Elijah with Jesus? In the previous chapter, like I said earlier, Jesus told them they would have to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow, and those who give up their lives for his sake will gain it. St. John Chrysostom masterfully connects Moses and Elijah to the coming work that Christ is going to call Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the disciples to do. And he writes this, For he would have them emulate their winning ways towards the people, and their presence of mind and inflexibility, and that they should be meek like Moses, and jealous for God like Elijah, and full of tender care as they were. For the one endured a famine, Elijah, of three years for the people, and the other, Moses, said, If thou wilt forgive them their sin, forgive or else blot me too out of the book which you have written. In other words, brothers and sisters, the meekness and obedience of Moses and his willingness to ask God to take his life instead of the people when they sinned against God. And the zeal of Elijah and his willingness to suffer along with the people when the famine came. And his zeal to stand up to the wicked king Ahab and the wicked queen Jezebel and the wicked prophets of Baal that is to be theirs as well. These disciples then are to model and do that themselves. And do that themselves. And Chrysostom notes, and they do, because he says, because each of these, having lost life, found it. Right? James doesn't even make it through the book of Acts. Like, he dies in the book of Acts. And John winds up dying decades later, and Peter, we know, is martyred in Rome. And then Matthew continues, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here if you wish. I will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. 
When the disciples heard this, they were terrified. When confronted by this vision, the disciples are flummoxed, and St. Peter, grasping for something to say, blurts out, let's build three tabernacles. It doesn't sound like quite a bad idea, right? He's, he's making this connection between what happened with Moses, because on that encounter with God on the mountain, Moses gets the instructions for building the tabernacle. So why not them? Right? Construct a mobile tent for worship for the people of Israel, as well as instruction for how the priests should, should act and what they should do in their duties. Peter sees this parallel. But as he speaks, the voice of the Father interrupts him and says, and I love it, this is my paraphrase, right? Hey, buddy, this is my son, shut up. Right? It says, the voice interrupts him, right? God, the Father himself has to step in and say, dude, please, just be quiet. Because when we have this, having this encounter with God, sometimes it can't be summed up. We don't know how to react, and sometimes the only way we can react is in silence. And they fall down afraid, like all of us would if we heard God audibly. That's why when I hear people say sometimes, well, God told me to, to say this. I always think to myself, no, he didn't. Because if he actually audibly spoke to you, you would be down on the floor right now. We all would if God spoke to us audibly. We would be on the floor <laughs> like they were. And many years later, St. Peter, as we heard in his epistle, he writes about this experience and he says, I was a witness to what happened on the mountain. I heard the voice from heaven. And so in light of this experience, then his hearers should pay attention to what he's writing to them. This experience, this encounter with God on the, with Christ on the mountain changed him and James and John. And so for us, brothers and sisters, as we continue the call to follow Jesus where he leads, like the disciples, we are also called to leave all, take up our cross and follow him. We're called to lose our life and to gain so we can gain it. Like Peter, James, and John, and like Moses and Elijah, we are called to be zealous for God. Because even as we serve the people of God and one another, right, in the ways that God has called and tasked us to, because like them, when we do that, when we lose our lives for Christ in service to his people, we will actually gain our lives in that we will be living our lives according to the will and plan of God. And also, in some sense, the experience of God for all of us right, is a journey up the mountain to see Jesus unveiled. St. Gregory of Nyssa wrote about particularly this passage about Moses. It's called The Life of Moses. It's long, it's, but it's very good, where he likens Moses' ascent up the mountain to a spiritual journey, the journey of faith. And he's right. Like, we are on that journey of faith, too. And that journey is our following in the paths of those who have gone before us, particularly the apostles. It's important, brothers and sisters, that we stay in the faith handed to us by the apostles through their letters and through what they said. Just as Moses was the mediator to the gathered people, he mediated to them from God the law of God, Jesus as the God-man is the mediator between God and between humanity. And he passes that through the apostles. In Acts 2.42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching in the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So for a church to be truly Christian, it has to hold to the teaching of those early followers of Jesus. For a church to be truly Christian, it has to confess what has been given to us by the apostles. Like we heard in the epistle reading, right? Peter says, people wrote down 
the scriptures as they were led by the Spirit. And none of this is of a private interpretation, he says. For us to be truly Christian, we are to continue in the way and the teaching of the apostles. And any church that neglects that, any church that gives that up, any church that makes that, not obligatory, but voluntary, right, has left the faith. Because we're not making this up. It's not our own private interpretation. We were given this. We were, this story that Jesus told them to not tell anybody until after his resurrection, we get that story. And in hearing that story, it helps us to be quiet. And just as Peter had to be told to be quiet and listen to the Father, sometimes we have to be told to be quiet and listen to what God is telling us. For a church to be truly Christian, it has to hold to the teaching of those followers of Jesus, as summed up best, I believe, in the ancient creeds and confessions of the church, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. And as we, brothers and sisters, trudge up day by day, we will, if we remain faithful, see our Lord, and hopefully he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And you might be sitting to yourself, sitting, thinking to yourself, I wish that I could have seen it. Life is really hard for me right now. And a vision of God would be so fulfilling for me. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, God graces us with an experience like that. Sometimes we, when we hear for the service of story, you know, Dennis told about a vision that he had of Christ at the, at the, on the cross. It's incredibly moving. I've never seen a vision like that. Most of you may have never seen a vision like that either. But maybe you may have had just a sense of God's presence. I've had that, knowing just as, as, as sure as I'm sitting there that God is here with me. I couldn't explain it. I just had a sense that God was there with me. You may have had a similar experience like that. Maybe you had a different experience. God moves in our hearts in different ways. Maybe you were having a conversation with somebody in the middle of a really troubling time and they said something and it put everything into perspective and gave you a new way of looking at things. That can be an experience of God, the presence of God. And brothers and sisters, even if we don't have a vision on the mountain, when we are gathered here in worship as God's people, we still get a vision of that. Every time I come to the table and every time I consecrate the elements as I stand here at the altar and I hold up the elements and I say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that is our vision of Christ. That we don't, that we don't even, that we not just see, but that we hold in our hands and that we taste. Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. We might not have a vision of Christ and glory like this. But St. John Chrysostom, and I love this, he's so good on the transfiguration, and I've quoted him once already, I've got to quote him again. He said this in one of his sermons, but if we will, we also shall behold Christ, not as they then on the mountain, but in far greater brightness. Right? So he's saying, what they saw, we're, what we're going to see is even greater than that. What they saw was just a fraction, was just a glimpse. And he goes on, for not thus he shall come hereafter. For then to spare his disciples, he discovered so much only of his brightness as they were able to bear. 
right? So he only showed them what he knew that they could handle. And he continues, Hereafter Christ shall come in the very glory of the Father, not with Moses and not with Elijah only, but with the infinite host of angels, with the archangels, with the cherubim, with those infinite tribes not having a cloud over his head, but even heaven itself being folded up. The vision we will receive, brothers and sisters, will be greater because we will see Christ completely unveiled. And that's the name of my sermon today, Christ Unveiled. They saw a fraction of his unveiling on the mountain. Moses saw a fraction of the unveiling of God. But every single one of us, brothers and sisters, even if we don't have that experience now, on the final day, when Christ returns in glory, as we confess, to judge the living and the dead, his kingdom will have no end, and we will behold him in the fullness of his glory. And when that happens, we will be changed. We will be transfigured just as he was. The transfiguration that he showed them on the mountain is also a foretaste of what is the destiny for each and every single one of you sitting here. That at the last day, if we hold true to Christ, if we forsake all to follow him, that that glory he showed them, we will share in it too. And as St. Paul says in Romans, if the spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, that same spirit, the Holy Spirit, will give life to your mortal bodies. The vision we will receive is greater. And we will, as St. Paul tells us, we will then see with unveiled face the glory of the Lord as we are transformed from glory to glory. The divine glory that shone through Jesus Christ is the glory we will share in ourselves as our earthly bodies will be changed and our mortal bodies will finally give way to fullness of life in Christ. And so to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is unveiled on the mountain, be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting and is all holy good and life-giving spirit.